following presentation is part of a six-week class titled Introduction to Mindfulness. The class is offered at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Anybody have to work with uh, resistance about 45 minutes ago, not wanting to come back? <laughs> Did you remember to see it as a phenomena that was arising in your mind? Oh, this is just resistance being known. It's like night and day, isn't it? When a storm arises in our mind, normally what we do is we just get identified with it. Like, oh, I'm anxious about coming back, or I'm feeling too busy to come back. And it's just the experience of anxiety, or the experience of dread, or boredom, or whatever it might be, it just feels so personal, feels so appropriate, in a sense, to listen or react to it. But when we remember, you know, we can just see that that emotion, that content, that those thoughts, that's just what it is. It's just this particular feeling that's being felt emotionally, and this particular content that's being known. And it's a, it's a radical simplification. In a way, it breaks down the whole story that it so, so that can be so seductive and uh, basically leads us around. There's a beautiful image that's used in the Buddhist tradition. You know how in the olden days, uh, farmers that have oxen to do the heavy lifting and the plowing and things like that. And uh, you know, these are huge animals. They're very strong, many times stronger than a human being, let alone a little kid. But little kids can uh, make that animal pretty much do whatever they want it to do. They often would have a little ring in the nose, right? They tie a rope to that ring. And if the little kid tugs this way, that big animal goes that way. If the kid tugs the other way, the beast goes the other way. All life long, that big, strong beast wants to avoid that little pain in its nostrils so it's willing to be enslaved. I mean, I'm not saying the ox could actually get away, but you understand the point here. You can get a big animal to do all sorts of things forever just because that big animal doesn't want to feel a little pain. And so this is also similar. See how this might be similar for you, for you and me, where like if there's a scary thought like all the stuff I have to do tomorrow, and I just can't, like I believe I can't be with that thought or that feeling. So I'm willing to do all sorts of things. Like I'm willing to watch TV until 2 in the morning, or I'm willing to eat way more than I need to eat as a way of avoiding feeling that feeling. Or I'm willing to think obsessively about my problems in order to avoid just being with the pain uh, of uncertainty or the pain of things being unresolved in my life or you know whatever the pain might be. So one of the things we learn in this practice is this other option. Instead of reacting to pain or running from pain, whether it's physical or emotional or existential, we have this other option, which is to just recognize, well, it's just sensation. I mean, what actually is pain? It's just sensation, isn't it? It's just a combination of physical and mental experience happening. 
And this experience of physicality or sensation and this experience of emotion and thought, you know, mind and body, there's only these two things. In the Buddhism, we talk about the six sense gates. So one of the sense gates, one of the ways we know the world is through knowing the mind. We know what the mind is thinking. We can, you know, if we're not distracted. And in emotionality, the sort of sort of feeling of the mind, the pleasantness or unpleasantness that's arising in any moment. All this is mind. And then we have body, which are just the five physical senses. We see, we smell, we taste, we touch, and we hear. And these are the two ways, our body and mind, these are the two ways, or the six ways, that we know the world. So in this practice, we're learning how to be profoundly honest and direct, like the body's like this, the five physical senses, in this moment, like this, smelling, tasting, touching, touching, hearing, and seeing, is like this now. This is just these five things being known. And then there's the mind being known, the attitude, the mood, the content, the emotional feeling. This is being known. Life seems so complicated, but actually, you know, take this in. Life is never more than these six things being known. Where are these six things being known? We have a sense that hearing is out there, seeing is out there. Even my thoughts, when I think about yesterday, it seems like it's out there. But the physicality and mentality, it's all happening in the mind, right? In fact, this is, this is a little out there, but I'll just throw it out to try to understand it or like grasp it. But actually, we don't even know if there's such a thing as an external reality. Because all we know is seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, tasting. And we know the mind, the thoughts and emotionality of the mind. That's it. We just know what the mind is sensing, or even that is a presumption. We just know what's moving through the mind in terms of the mind knowing the body and the mind knowing the content of the mind. So this practice, we're simplifying from this idea there is a world, there is Mark, we've got these problems, we want things to be this way and that way, and realizing that those are just thoughts and feelings being known. No matter how complicated our story is, how seductive, how important it seems, no matter how much you feel you should be home doing something else, or how wonderful this is and you're going to do this for the rest of your life until you're fully enlightened and walk on water and do all sorts of things, whatever thought, whatever experience, it's always the mind and body being known. It really grounds us. Even even that notion is sort of calming. Like, oh, it's really simple. Just the mind body being known. Human life has always been mind body being known. Every single moment of our life, you, know, you can bring to mind a really ordinary or boring moment, or your most dramatic moment, a car accident, or at the birth of your child, or falling in love, or falling off a garage, or whatever it might be, you know, that was just mind-body being known. Just the moment of experiencing that was known. And even when you think you're the worst person in the world, that's also just a moment of that particular thought and emotion being known. 
So this is all we have to do in practice, you know, the formal sitting practice as opposed to daily life practice. It may seem like, oh, we got to get calm, we got to concentrate the mind, but actually what we're ultimately trying to do is just see things as they actually are. We're bringing our understanding, or what sometimes we call in Buddhism, our view, in line with reality. That's it. We know, if we took a poll right now, most of us would say, well, my view is already in line with reality. But we don't realize how much our view, like we're, we're massaging our reality, what we're sensing, we're massaging it to fit our view, as opposed to allowing our view, our way of understanding, to come out of our direct experiencing. So here, instead of our ideas about things trumping our direct experiencing, we're learning to rely more on our direct experiencing or being mindful. You know, that's where mindfulness comes in, because it's really the central practice. We're learning how to track moment-to-moment experience as it actually is. That's like a definition for mindfulness. And then that tracking of present moment experience as it actually is, is then the ground out of which our understanding, our view, our way of being comes. Not our pre-existing ideas or, you know, our sort of the philosophy that we like, that seems reasonable, but we let our worldview, our values, come out of our experiencing of the world. Like, we could be quite you know, fundamentalists around this idea, it's all one. You know, we're all here together. Like, we could come up with some philosophical notion that intellectually we all like, and then we could become radical fundamentalists, and we could even justify killing people who don't believe that everything is one. (laughs) Because they're a threat. And this is the sort of terrible irony of so many religious, cultural traditions is that uh, they may look kind of good, but it's really it's a, a human idea being projected on to experience, to reality, instead of any beautiful sort of religious, spiritual, humanistic feeling idea. It has to come out of direct experience. So love isn't an idea. Love is something we, you know, it's a word we use when the heart is willing to include everything. That's what love is. You know, peace is the experience. It's an experience. It isn't a concept. Peace is the experience of the heart or mind not struggling with things as they are. That's what peace means. We're not struggling with our partner as he or she is. We're not struggling with anything. Then it's peaceful. Compassion isn't something we try to do. It's the natural response when the heart, mind, is radically present with suffering. Then, without anybody doing anything, we, the body, mind, responds. It does something if it can. And even if it can't do anything, if there's nothing to be done, it is uh, willing to be close to the suffering, our own or another's. So all of the beautiful things, the things that we'd all agree on, are good. 
patience, kindness, compassion, clarity, steadiness, calm. You know, these are values. I don't, does anybody want to argue with any of those values? Um, responsivity, creativity, nimble, being nimble, in the sense of being able to sort of meet the situation as it is. It's not about, like, defining the, what's the appropriate value, but starting to notice these values arising when the mind is mindful, when the heart is mindful. And then we just see how much more patient we are when we're mindful, how much more resilient we are when we're mindful, how much more creative we are when we're mindful. Like all the beautiful values of human beings come out of being mindful. It's like uh, in the Buddhist tradition, it's talked about it, you know, all our good friends gather around when we're mindful. All the wholesome friends gather around. That just makes the practice so simple. Like if we want to be a good person, it can, okay, for two years I really develop patience and then I'll move on. And, but here then, what we're discovering, you know, is that, well, if I just emphasize this commitment to truth, really, that's what mindfulness is, right? We're committing to being open to how it is, seeing clearly how it is. So in every moment, this sort of truthful connecting with how it is in the body and mind, what's being known, knowing what's being known, knowing that it's like this. And trusting, you know, through our own experience and then the confidence built, trusting that all good things, everything we've ever wanted, even things we haven't imagined yet that we want, desire like full peace, liberation of the heart or the release of the heart, they all come from just emphasizing that mindful presence. It's, you could say it's like the root of all good. So then what, what would the root of all bad be? You know? What is the root of all bad? You can think of like, of course, people want to say Hitler, but, which is fine. Anybody will work, you know, even our own bad habits. What is the root of our bad habits? What's the root of the sort of stereotypically evil people? What is the root? Ignorance. Not seeing things as they are. Being disconnected from how it actually is. When people are disconnected, they're capable of doing really terrible things. When people are really clearly connecting, sensitive, awake, we tend not to do terrible things. So that's just a, a little encouragement for the practice. In a few minutes we'll do our about a 30 minute sit and we're going to do three parts just so you get a sense of uh, different ways you can work with your mind. So we'll start with the body scan meditation for about 10 minutes. And then you'll hear, I'll, I'll make it clear when the transition, we'll just work with the breath meditation. It's one of the classic techniques in Buddhist meditation. Even after the Buddha's big awakening, after he'd become a very famous teacher at, at the time, very respected, he continued to do a lot of mindfulness of breathing practice. It's sort of interesting, isn't it? There's somebody, you know, at least as the legend goes, fully, completely enlightened, no greed, anger, delusion, 
uh, trusting his mind. And when he had the time, when he wasn't teaching or doing whatever he needed to do, he would do mindfulness of breathing practice. That's sort of encouraging for us. And then the third thing we'll do is more of an open attention practice, where the meditation object is whatever is predominant in that moment. So we're not going to be, we're going to practice not directing the attention. The first two we could call directed meditations, meaning we're directing the attention through the body with the body scan or back to the breath if we're doing mindfulness breathing. But the last one will be, in some ways, for some people at least, it's more challenging, but it has a lot of advantages, and I'll talk about that uh, after the sit. So why don't you go ahead and stretch out your legs if you'd like so that you'll be comfortable sitting for about 30 minutes. You can stand if you want. So ready to find a place to sit down. <coughs> and as you know, it's unlikely that the body will be perfectly comfortable. So just do your best. Finding this compromise between a sense of stability and relief to the body, including the eyes can be released and the jaw, the shoulders and arms, the belly. So we're releasing as much of the physical tension that is willing to release, not needed to maintain the posture. And then in a subtle way, encouraging a beautiful alignment of the spine. Of course, a natural alignment in the spine includes the natural curve, and the head rests balanced on top of the spine. And one way to check to see if the mind and body are, have come together is to take a couple of slow, full, easy breaths, fill and empty the lungs several times, as if you have all the time in the world. So we're slowing down, undoing the habit of rushing. And the deep breathing will help the mind to better know, to better open to the whole body. See if you can actually discover a little joy in this easy, deep breathing. A pleasant sensuality in the simple act of breathing in and out in a deep, easy way. One more time, perhaps. 
allowing the breathing to continue on its own. And simply bring the attention again to the top of the head. This is a meditation that we did last week. Just feel the ordinary sensations at the top of the head. Remembering this possibility of being receptive, just allowing things to be. And there's a simple ringing truth. The top of the head is like this now. You feel the sides of both, both sides of the head rather, the right and left ears. It's as if the awareness is allowed to soak in. We're feeling both the obvious sensations, but also the more subtle sensations, even qualities of vibration or tingling, include now the back of the head as well. Receiving all the different sensations in the forehead, brow, the temples, and any sensations there may be beneath the skull, even that experience of pressure, opening to the eyes. Feel the air touching the skin of the face. The jaw, the cheeks, teeth, lips and gums, tongues. Feel both the face and the rest of the head together now. Is it possible to allow things to be? Clearly aware and letting things be. Receiving all the different sensations in the neck and in the throat and allowing things to be. And remember, it's okay if there are places of tension. We can learn to trust even the unpleasant sensations we might open to. Notice how these places that are unpleasant or tight, we're allowing the sensations to be, we're allowing the sensations to move, to unfold however they do. We feel both shoulders, so from the sides of the neck, we allow the awareness to soak into the tops of the shoulders and into the shoulder joints. Down both arms, the biceps and the underarms. Feel the clothes, the sleeves, touching the skin of the arms. Feel the bend in the elbow. Forearms, wrists, 
feeling both hands, inside, outside, and all the fingers. Moving the awareness down the torso, so begin at the base of the throat and the back of the neck. And little by little allow this open, clear, receptive awareness down to the body. Just feel the collarbone and the upper ribs, upper back and upper chest. Feeling the breastbone, sternum, the shoulder blades, mid-chest, simply feeling things as they actually are now. We're not looking for a special experience. Let's continue down little by little. The mind is interested. It has no agenda except to know things as they are. Eventually opening to the diaphragm, the lower ribs, kidneys, solar plexus, <coughs> eventually into the abdomen, down into the lower back, cultivating qualities such as patience and interest, acceptance, and let the awareness settle now down into the lower abdomen, all the way down to the pubic bone and then down to the buttocks and then feeling the structure of the pelvis down to the floor of the pelvis through the anus and sit bones and hip sockets we'll take a few more moments and feel the entire torso the hips together feeling the trunk of the body and simply knowing it's like this now. Sensations are being known. It's like this. Can this be okay? For both sides, just as they are. All the different touch points being known. Even the touching of the clothes against the skin, something to be known here and now. Feeling the knees just as they are. Shins and calves. Feeling both ankles. Both feet, the tops of the feet and bottom, sides, toes, heels, 
just notice the legs and feet, the great diversity, aliveness of all these sensations. In fact, the whole body, of course, is alive with sensation. You might even realize that the more we open and see the body or know the body directly, it breaks down all our pre-existing ideas or images as we begin to experience the body as a movement of sensation. body to be. And notice how this awareness, this mindful awareness of the body can be effortless. See if you can stop it. Can you stop being sensitive to the body now? Instead of trying to be mindful of the body, allow the experience of the body, all the different sensations, just allow them to present themselves in the, in, present themselves in the space of the mind. In other words, when the mind is open, Sensations are being known. And we'll do the mindfulness of breathing. So just notice as we're present with the body, intimate, notice the natural movement of the breathing process happening, already happening. And without needing to control it or fix it, make it different, we just allow the breathing process to move, to happen. Breath comes in, breath goes down. And of course, the body knows how to breathe. So what a relief. Just trust the body to breathe, however it is, smooth or rough, shallow or deep, trusting the body to breathe. interested in the natural movement of the breathing process. And without creating tension, see if for at least moments you can be interested in the movement of the breath, the natural movement of the breath coming in and the breath going out. Is it possible to be interested without creating tension in the body or mind?
is it possible to have a continuity of attention? Going to begin again and again. We're developing great patience, learning how to be interested in what's often very ordinary. Feeling the breath coming in, feeling the breath going out. So we're learning how to redirect the attention, or you could say, focus the attention and what is simple and ordinary, the movement of the breath and the body. And to do this effectively, we have to learn to let go of everything else, all the mind's attachments, fixations. If the mind begins to be sleepy, See if you can be more interested in what is being felt when the breath comes in and the particular qualities of the sensations as the breath goes out. See if it's possible to know what it feels like in the middle of an in-breath or the middle of an out-breath or that transition between the end of the in-breath and the beginning of the out-breath. So this interest 
will enliven the mind, brighten the mind. can also get interested in what interrupts the continuity of attention. So instead of feeling badly because you've gotten distracted, get interested in the cause and effect. What leads to distraction, the mind spinning with thought? 
what qualities of mind support the continuity, the non-distraction.
remember that this style of practice, absolutely everything is included. So there isn't any particular experience that the mind has to say no to. Any body experience, any mental experience is included. Oh, this is being known now. It's like this now. Can this be okay? Is the mind willing to allow this experience to present itself here in the moment, knowing that, like everything else, it will arise, bloom, and then pass away? judge your experiences. The mind is doing what it's been conditioned to do, and the body is doing what it's been conditioned to do. And it's the wisdom of the practice that's willing to be open to this, open to what the mind is doing out of habit, open to what the body is doing out of habit, out of conditioning. So for another minute or two, unconditional acceptance, clear, open awareness, and a releasing, a trusting. at the center people use this hand gesture it's called anjali just put your hands together bring your forehead toward the fingertips and it's just a gesture from the east although some places here in the west we use something similar right it's just a gesture that um, like of appreciation or gratitude so it is in the great scheme of things it's pretty rare that human beings have 30 minutes to be quiet like this 
So you might just feel a natural gratitude when you have had a sit. So what you do is find some gesture that feels right just to appreciate that you had the wherewithal to do the practice, that you, you were able to find a quiet place, things like that. And also now if you want to stretch out your legs, release any tension that you have. And maybe uh, the person who's sitting right by the light switches over in the corner. Yeah, at the top two, just up about halfway. So we can see each other. Thanks. Maybe I'll say a few things about sitting. I mentioned last week that I would do a little refresher or introduction to how to sit. The basic instruction, especially in this tradition, isn't so much to model your physical posture after a picture you saw or a particular way, which happens in other traditions, and you know maybe there's some value to that. But here, it's more. You know, the body and the, and the mind reflect each other. So we can, we can actually use the body to support the qualities of mind that you're trying to develop. And you can use the mind to support the release in the body that we're all interested in. So I think it's best to think of it as an interactive process instead of working on one to affect the other, but working with both together. So what that means, in short, is that the sort of beautiful posture, the ideal posture, is something that's going to develop as the practice develops. The more we understand the right posture, it means the more we're understanding how to work with the mind. So the best way to uh, hear what I'm about to say is in the context of, well, what are we trying to do with the mind? Well, we want the mind, remember the first week I said we want the mind to be alert and relaxed, right? Well, those are the two qualities we want in the body. So the alert part is this uprightness in the spine, right? Because when the spine has this nice integrity, this composure, and then the head is balanced on the top of the spine, and the spine has a kind of a natural uprightness, so then the head doesn't need any muscular effort to keep it in place, because it's balanced on top of the spine. And then the rib cage is naturally open, which allows the breathing to be relatively easy. The organs are being squeezed, the energy, subtle energy, that chi or prana is being blocked, obstructed in any way. Because of course, we could become totally obsessed about uprightness in a way that we may look upright from the outside, but inside we'd be all not. So that's obviously not it. We balance that intention to be clear and awake and upright in our posture with the intention for the mind and body to be released, to be relaxed, to be trusting, to be forgiving. So what allows for the uprightness is that nice base whether you're in a chair or on the floor, when the base is really solid and grounded, then it's relatively easy to be upright. So if you're on the floor, what it means generally is having a wide 
spread as the weight is touching the ground. So if you sit far back on your cushion, you know, sit on the back half, it tends to tilt the pelvis a certain way. The knees come up, and here I'm kind of dangling on my two little fist bones, right? And my feet are touching the first two. But there's not a lot of stability in this posture. So generally, especially if you have stiff hips, you want to sit on the front third of your cushion. So like if I reach behind, I see there's a lot of the cushion here I'm not touching with my butt. And that tilts the knees down toward the floor, so eventually they're going to go down now. This is like a relatively easy pose for some people with the ankle sort of under your knees. But if they're really up high, then you might want to prop something under there so you have more of that base of support. Or you might want a higher cushion so the knees are going to be angled down, coming down more. So you can cross your legs and have one foot under one knee, the other foot under the other knee. Another relatively easy posture is to put one ankle in front of the other. This is actually called the easy pose, but that doesn't mean it is going to be easy for you. Either leg would be fine. And then we have the different lotus poses. So the quarter lotus is you put the top of the foot on your calf. The half lotus, you put the top of the foot on your thigh. And then the full lotus, which I don't use, you put your both tops of the feet on both sides like this. But I don't, that's not good for my knees. <coughs> now the, the point is, of course, the flexibility isn't coming from our knees. The bend in the knee is sort of normal. It's not, a, it's not a twist and a bend. It's just a normal bend. That means the rotation is in the hip, not in the knees. So your knees, I mean, you might have pain in your knees, but that pain can linger once you release your leg. If it does, it's not good. I mean, this is common sense. Now, sitting can be very painful, but the pain that we work with is pain that doesn't cause any damage. We don't work with pain that causes damage because when you can avoid pain that causes damage, you should avoid it. But pain that doesn't cause any long-term damage can be actually a good teacher, and we'll talk about that more as the weeks go by, and it might come up just in people's questions tonight, which I'll open it up in, in just a few minutes after I finish talking about sitting. So these are some cross-leg positions. <coughs> a lot of people like to sit on the floor, tend to bring about a sense of being grounded, but you don't need to sit on the floor. And I'll talk about sitting on the chair in just a minute. But if you want to sit on the floor but can't sit cross-legged, a lot of people can sit in a kneeling position, and that's where those benches come in, and we can also use other cushions. Do you have a regular round cushion? Can I just use it for a second? So you can take a regular cushion Put it the long way, not the flat way. And then just sit down on it. And now that's relatively low, that you're getting a more extreme bend in the knees, and that may not be good for you. But you could just elevate, you could just get another pillow. This time do it flat on top of the first pillow. And sit up like that. And you can have your knees relatively far apart. That's better for some people. Hands and the knees like this. And then you still get that nice spine. See, tonight, one of the nice things about being on the floor, you can do it on a chair, but it isn't so easy, is the unsupported spine. 
once you start getting better at your meditation practice, the tendency is to fall asleep when we're when the body's too comfortable. Actually, we need some of the basic discomfort that comes from sitting in a kind of upright posture because it keeps the mind alert. It's not harmful. It's not the kind of pain that's going to harm the body, but it's the kind of pain that will keep the mind awake. And if we get too comfortable, like if we all if we had a hundred lazy boys in this room, <laughs> the thing that would keep us awake would be the snoring. <laughs> really. And even on longer retreats, you know, there's people easily fall asleep when they've been practicing for a while because generally, not for everybody, but generally, people learn how to calm the mind and body first. And then later, with a lot of prodding from the teacher and a lot of their own trial and error, they learn how to stay vividly awake while being really relaxed and calm. It's a beautiful balance, but it's not so easy to realize this balance. We should see this as a, a very noble endeavor to be profoundly released and relaxed and calm and profoundly awake, bright, interested, alert, together. Not see them as like, I can either really cultivate tranquility, but I'll be dull, or I can cultivate brightness, but I'll be neurotic and you know, tight. But how to have both? Because that's the mind that can see things as they are. The relaxation is not having any agenda. When we're really relaxed and content, we don't have an agenda, right? And that really helps the clear seeing, not having an agenda. When we're tight, even though we might be vigilant, you know, really alert, but if we're tight, that tightness puts a spin on the mind. The mind's looking to be done with the tightness. And that kind of neediness, craving, gets in the way of seeing things clearly, which doesn't allow the practice to unfold. So we really need to find that balance in sitting. It's like taking the time to find the best posture for your body. So this is the time to shop around with different postures. So those are some of the sitting on the floor postures, kneeling with cushions or one of the wooden benches. And then once you find what you like, and if you have some money, you might want to get yourself the cushion or chair or bench that works for your body. Now, if you're in a chair, often, not always, but often kitchen chairs are best. You don't want, you want something that is supportive, but not too comfortable. And you can even, you know, explore a little bit, you can even elevate the back legs of the chair so you're getting that same angle with your pelvis. This is from my perspective, not yours. Um, tilting the pelvis forward. And that will keep the back, uh, allow the back to be less dependent on the back of the chair. There's even chairs they make, they're expensive, but they're cellos they make for orchestras, for cello players, and maybe some other um, musicians that are built that way, you know, the, the flat seat of the chair is at an angle. But you can just prop a little cushion there, or you can even buy wedge-shaped cushions. If you shop around, you can find them online somewhere and make them. And that will help. Or you can, uh, as you get, as you develop your muscles sitting in the chair, being upright in the chair, then, then eventually wean yourself to the top of the back isn't leaning and maybe prop up your, your lumbar spine with a cushion so you get support there, but from the mid-back up, it's not touching the chair. And then maybe even someday you don't even need lumbar support. You can just be on the chair 
than actually using the back of it. And this will be especially important, like I said earlier, if you're falling asleep a lot after you've developed your practice a little bit, you just notice your mind is getting dull and streaming. Then it's one thing to work with is posture. Well, what can I do to cultivate that uprightness? And in the same way, if you're just getting being really tight often in your sit, if that's your normal experience, it's just being really tight, then you might want to cultivate a more relaxed posture. And let the uprightness come naturally, but first emphasize the tranquility in your body posture, and that would support the tranquility in the mind. Does that make sense? So a couple other things about being in a chair. It's nice to have a right angle with the knees, the, the thighs, and the calves, and uh, shins. So that if you're a short person, you want to elevate the floor, so put a pillow or a blanket on the floor. If you're a tall person, elevate the seat of the chair. So you get somewhat of a 90 degree angle there. And then generally, we don't cross the legs when we're in a chair, seat flat on the floor. It, it gives that feeling of a strong base. And then whether you're sitting in a chair or on the floor, and just in a symmetrical position. So traditionally, you know, you can rest your right palm in your left, your right hand rather in your left, like this. Or you can have the hands on your thighs, whether you're on the chair or on the floor, either way. But basically, any way that feels good and is symmetrical. Because the body has a, there's an inner, inner feeling of integrity when the body is symmetrical. So it can be useful to do that. So any questions now about the posture? Good. And uh, often, you know, as you sit more, you might have questions. Sometimes they're really specific to you. So you might want to just come up after the class and ask. Other questions about posture might be appropriate for everybody. So you might want to just ask them in our time. Yeah, Kitty. A little bit loud. loud. Yeah, Yeah. generally what I think is good is to uh, exaggerate a little right at the beginning. So, you know, lifting the breastbone, lengthening the back of the head, and then relaxing there. So you're getting a sense of, of um, like if you're up too high with your chin, the mind tends to get spacey. If you come down too far, the mind tends to get sleepy. So you just have to see. But it's okay to paint a beautiful picture with your body initially, but then it's always good to relax, something a little bit more natural. So you, you, you sort of experiment what feels really good, but you know you can't hold, and then you relax from there. Because we're not trying to be perfect, because perfection is a very oppressive state. <laughs> Because it's all about idea. It's an idea of the perfect mark, you know, and that's really an oppressive thing in the mind. And, and then the body suffers. When the mind gets tight and oppressed, the body bears the breath. Yeah. And now, if any questions about practice or just sharing, like, what happened tonight would be appropriate. We'll take about 10 more minutes at least to do this. Yeah. And say your name, please. I'm Dan. And as I'm, as I'm coming down, Noticing my body, um, I'm noticing tightness, and what I want to do is just notice it. I'm not trying to move it around or flip it around or get out of it. I'm noticing it because that's where I have to be. 
such as pain in the body, we don't immediately move. In fact, we train the mind not to immediately react to strong sensations, strong intense thoughts or memories. But instead, that's why in meditation practice, there's this presumption, I guess, of stillness. Now, of course, if you open your eyes and look around, you'll see that there are very few people who are still for any length of time. Accomplished meditators, of course, can be quite still for a long period of time. Most of us move. But the intention is not to move. The intention is to be relaxed still. And that doesn't mean there aren't impulses to move. There could be all kinds of impulses to move, to bolt, to run out of the room, to do all kinds of things. But the intention is to be still, to just let things happen, whatever arises. Because, so it's not about repressing what's moving, but learning that things can move without the body moving. We can feel things very intensely, but not move and not repress. So this is what we're learning. And that's why we use this training of stillness. Now at some point, sensations will arise that are really intense. And maybe for a few moments, you're able to be with the intensity and stay relaxed and relate to the intense sensations with wisdom. Like, oh, it's just sensations being known. Just intensity being known. But at some point, mind maybe gets exhausted or we lose our composure. still relaxed presence, and we start taking the intensity personally. This is driving me crazy. This is, you forgot to ring the bell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can fall asleep, it happens. You can fall asleep. I've been there for a long time. <laughs> so those of you who sit in the front row, you know, you can just have me. <laughs> so at those points, at that point, it might be appropriate to move. But then we want that movement to also be a mindful act. So we realize, hey, honey, I can't be skillful with these sensations anymore. I can't stay interested without being reactive. Either I have to distract myself and construct a more provocative fantasy, so provocative that I can get it absorbed into that, and not feel the painful sensation. Or I'm going to get really tight around the painful sensation. Neither of those things I need practice at. Right? I'm not here to practice distracting my mind with a really provocative fantasy so I don't feel the pain. And often the fantasies are really painful too. You know, it's like we think about really intense things when something intense is going on in the body, for example. And we don't need to practice struggling with pain either, because we do that all the time, and it's counterproductive. So that's the time to move your body. When, when your only option, and you, you've tried, your only option is to cultivate unskillful states of mind, distraction, or controlling, resisting, struggling, then, by all means, quietly, if you're with other people, move your body. So you might, you know, just stretch your leg out quietly, continue to sit with it out for a while, and then maybe after three or four minutes, the energy starts to move, the tightness is released, you can bring your leg back again, or however you do that. Or you can even quietly come to a standing position and just continue your practice standing for a few minutes, and then quietly sit back down. 
before it might be that, you know, you slump and then the pain of that stands up. Then you might just bring your posture back. But it's not the time to sort of work out knots in your shoulders, you know. So if you can do a composed movement, whether you're alone or with another with other people, then you can incorporate that into your practice. If you can't really, if, it, if even that doesn't work, then you're probably asking yourself to sit too long. It might be better than instead of like tonight we sat for 30 minutes, which you know at home may not be so easy. But you might want to break it up so that instead of thinking I should sit for 30 minutes, maybe sit 10 minutes and then do a little walking meditation, and we'll talk about that next week, and then come back to sit for 10 minutes, something like that. Yeah. Does it make yeah, it's a good question. It depends on kind of how your mind is. Generally speaking, the more light, the more it supports wakefulness. The more dim the light, the more it supports tranquility. So if you're already good at tranquility, but you're falling asleep a lot, you might want, at least in front of you, a light. If you're really good at, uh, at sort of tranquility, well, if you if you want to support tranquility, you might want to dim the light, have have a darker. So I just be pragmatic about that. Like what what supports the balance in the mind? Yeah, other comments or questions about practice? Yeah. I have a long and I have a little bit louder. Wanting to fix things. 
And that's just where we are. So that's like wanting to heal the world, wanting to fix the world. It's really the same thing. And it's not entirely negative. It's just limited by the amount of wisdom we have. You know, people, like, I, maybe I just said this last week, you know, countries invade other countries because they want to fix things. So wars are always about trying to fix things that are, they, certain people at least, think are broken and need fixing or need to be stopped. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to fix things. What's wrong is the limited perspective of the mind that wants to fix things. So the more we understand that, the more we, we want to address that problem. It's the lack of understanding that's actually the problem, not the motivation to fix. We, as human beings, seem to have a lot of that motivation to want to fix things. But we forget that what allows us to actually make things better is understanding or wisdom. So the combination of the willingness to engage and the wisdom to know what to do when we're engaging. And so one way to sort of, like, so the real question that Laura was asking is, well, how do we know how much to, to invest in deepening understanding and how much to invest in engagement? Well, I think that's the wrong question because we, understanding, we'll get understanding or deepen understanding both places when we're relatively quiet in something we call meditation or living a really simple life, we can develop understanding and we can develop understanding going out and making messes by trying to fix everything. So the best way then is to use your whole life to deepen understanding. When you're able to have, when circumstances allow for quiet time, your circumstances meaning the external and the internal, like your heart's willing just to be at home, you know, willing to be still, willing to sit down, then your, the lessons you're going to learn are going to be subtle lessons. Generally speaking, subtle is better than growth. If we learn things at a subtle level, the mind generalizes out to the growth. So for example, if we're sitting and the mind is really still and calm, and then in a very subtle way, there we are feeling really content and peaceful, and we notice this little niggly thing, the mind's attached. It likes the stillness, it likes the quiet, and it, it's sort of constructing a sense of me who's getting good at this. I'm always going to do this. And then we see that. That's like an insight. We see the tendency of the mind to crave what's pleasant. And because things are really subtle, that little insight about craving and how it always leads to suffering, to stress, it gets generalized out so that we're walking past our favorite bakery and we see the cream puff we die for, you know, that's just, it's just so much easier to see how the needing it, the wanting it, is suffering. doesn't mean we shouldn't go get it, but the grasping is suffering that we see because we learned it in a subtle way. So we can still learn, like on the fly there in front of the bakery, we can still have that same insight we had in the quietude of our meditation. But it won't go as deep. It won't be generalized in the same way. So that's why, not just in Buddhism, but in so many uh, spiritual traditions, uh, stepping away from the busyness of life is emphasized. Because it allows for insights that, uh, that are very deep, because the mind is in a subtle place. And there's a 
a really broad um, integration of that of the subtle insights. When we learn basically that hate and aversion doesn't work, and greed doesn't work, and disconnection doesn't work. These are the three lessons we learn in meditation, in this style of meditation. And every single form, expression of aversion, greediness, and disconnecting, what in Buddhism we call delusion, they never work. Never, ever work. But we have to have that insight. It's not enough, like, this seems like common sense. They won't change our behavior. Just that it makes sense to us, that greed, aversion, because we've already known that. I mean, is there anybody who doesn't already know this? Yet, how much of the time are we under the influence of greed, aversion, and disconnecting? All the time. So we don't really know it. We know it on one level, but we haven't seen it directly in our experience. And that's the whole reason for finding a quiet place every day, if you can. And then, if you're fortunate, you can get away on a retreat for a week or more, a year. That's even better. Plus your daily practice, or your almost daily practice. Then, in that special time, you've created the circumstances where life is just simpler. Less noise, less things stimulating our thoughts, more stability and comfort in the body. And in that relative simplicity, we're, we're going to really learn that greed, aversion, and delusion doesn't work, and non-greed, non-aversion, and non-delusion really work. Well, non-delusion is just clarity, seeing things as they are. Non-greed is contentedness and calm, and a kind of inner generosity, like not needing things to be different than they are. And non-aversion is just kindness and compassion. We just see over and over again, and we'll learn from many experiences, because in any experience we either caught in greed, aversion, and delusion, some manifestation, or the mind is in non-greed, non-aversion, and non-delusion. So we're either going to see this is working, this is the way, or this is not the way. And if we're mindful, we'll get that lesson. Every moment of mindfulness is we're learning that lesson, that either this isn't working or this works. And it actually doesn't matter if we're mindful of greed, aversion, and delusion, or we're mindful of a moment of non-greed, non-delusion, and non-aversion, because both are important lessons. And the point is to learn, it's to deepen understanding, not to avoid painful experiences. So don't worry if your mind is sort of fantasizing or complaining. Learn from it. That's the point. And the way we learn from it is we see it as it is. Oh, the mind is complaining. It's like this. When I'm saying, like, out loud, it's like this, that's that worldwide uh, kind of reflection. Huh, complaining doesn't work. Complaining hurts, but the mind is getting that. Now, if I hate the fact that I'm complaining, I can also awaken to that and say, oh, hating that I'm complaining doesn't work. That's also suffering. <coughs> oh, I hate that this whole thing just drives me crazy. <coughs> we see, that doesn't work either. So we just keep seeing that any expression of aversion, any expression of greed, however justified it seems, any expression of disconnecting from the way that it is, hiding, denying, distracting, it just doesn't work. And eventually the mind learns this. It has to, you know, really tens of thousands of little insights over years of practice completely transforms 
how we are in the world. Any last uh, comments or questions people have? Yeah, and then I'll say something about the handout. Say your name? Mark. Mark. Uh, I suppose what my practice so far is that I do um, almost immediately in sitting have a lot of imagery that comes up, most of the time it's pleasant imagery, uh, but it all somewhat seems like it's a precursor to what it is under all that. So um, I have a lot of unresolved grief and loss issues. So that imagery starts then to appear. I recognize what it, it is, and then because my initial response is I don't want to pay attention to that. Um, so then I kind of allow myself to stay with that imagery. Um, I don't know if it's completely considered a distraction, but I think it's, it's important for me to be attentive to it. Is there a feeling associated with the imagery? Oh, grief. Yeah. yeah. So why stay with the imagery? Why not go to the grief? Well, I do. I do eventually. And then that, from there, there's a really kind of emotional response to that. So it's rather intense response. Yeah. Um, so uh, I don't know. Is, this, is that scary, that emotional response? Oh, yeah. So then, so remember, we're we're just interested in the way it actually is. So from imagery to uh, feeling, emotion, to fear, you know, so we're just discovering. It's really a path of discovery where we're awakening. And mostly it always goes from growth to subtle. So when we have enough confidence, really let it just keep seeing what's underneath, what's coming next. Because it all wants to move. Well, my friend of mine accused me of changing. Um, but I think, again, it's, you know, that I will look for the kind of, but it actually tends to come up very natural. Yeah. And you can always be on the lookout, like, because this is like what I was saying before about the approach of healing versus understanding. And that's what you want to be on the lookout for. If that's true, that you really are anxious or excited about getting this feeling done, working through the street, then that can be counterproductive. A little of that initially might be useful to break the ice, to kind of overcome a, a natural fear we might have. But then ultimately that's not so useful beyond that point. And then it's just like interested in it. Because it's what's true now. And it's, as long as it's there, we if we can, if we have the composure, we let it move. But when it's not there, that's okay. Don't go looking for it when it's not there. Because there's sometimes people who uh, have a lot of emotional stuff that's coming up in their practice, then they enter a time where there isn't a lot of emotional stuff coming up in their practice, and they'll think something's broken, like they've done something wrong. But it won't always be that way. Sometimes what we're learning to be with is that sort of endless desolation. Nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. <laughs> and we feel like, well, why bother to practice? Nothing's happening. But what's happening is, is this profound and very important question. Can this be okay? Can this not anything happening be okay? Can the mind be okay? Does it have to be bored? Can it be okay with boredom? Because it always is changing. Can I fix the turn that did, did you have anything else to that part? 
So we're almost done with time. I just want to mention there's a handout if you didn't get it. And on that handout, we'll talk about this next week, I just uh, outlined two of the major models that come out of the Buddhist, the Buddhist tradition, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. I'll just say one minute of talk about this for one minute. The reason these conceptual maps are useful, sometimes we use the word dharma, and it, sometimes that word means the way it is. And the other way that word dharma or dhamma is used is the teaching that points to the way that it is. So the Buddhist teachings are called dhamma or dharma because they're teachings that point or sort of train the mind to open to the way that it is. So this conceptual map of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path is sort of a conceptual map to replace the one that we have. A normal map that we just get from our culture and just more generally, I think, being animals, is like, like one, one teacher I know said, uh, can I eat it? Will it eat me? Can I mate with it? <laughs> That's our orientation. Or, you know, is there anything pleasant here that I can get? Is there anything unpleasant that I want to get away from? And then we ignore everything else. So that's the normal paradigm we live with, where it's like, anything good that I can get, hold on to, make my own? Anything bad I should be aware of that I want to stay away from, get rid of? So we're going to switch from that paradigm to the Four Noble Truth paradigm, which is we're going through life with this understanding, like, and this valuing of understanding. What are we understanding? There is stress, or there is dukkha. So usually we don't use, I don't like to use the word suffering or stress because it's too limited. So sometimes it's nice just to have a new word. So the word from the Buddhist tradition in the Pali language is dukkha. You know, dukkha means the unsatisfactoriness. That even when things are good, the fact that we got to hold on to the good, you know, and we're afraid of losing it, that's, that's unsatisfying. Dissatisfying, isn't it? So that's dukkha. So there is dukkha in life, right? Anybody disagree? That's the first level truth. So that's a reflection. So instead of looking through life like what's pleasant that I could get, what's unpleasant that I want to stay away from, is we're noticing, oh, there's dukkha, there's stress, and then we get interested in that, right? Because it's a path of understanding. Oh, there's a cause for dukkha. The cause for dukkha is always in the mind. We think it's because my wife or my partner isn't treating me the way I want to be treated. But actually, the cause for dukkha is in our mind. That's a discovery, that's an insight we have. And then if it's in the mind, that means the mind can relate us in a different way and the cause can go away and then there won't be stress. So there is stress, there's a cause, there is a cessation of stress or dukkha. And there's a way of living leading to the cessation of stress or all suffering. That's a pretty provocative, profound claim from the Buddha that there is an end of suffering as a human being. So let's just stay open. So this is a different paradigm. So you could just start experimenting. We'll talk more about this next week. But just move through life, daily life, with that paradigm. So just notice, like as you're working or cooking your dinner, like. Is there stress at all in the moment? Or are you perfectly, completely happy in that moment? And if, you don't, if you're pretty sure you're not completely, fully happy in that moment, 
then this Beatrice says, well, how do I know that? Like, how do I know I'm not already completely free? Oh, yeah. There's doubt. Doubt. A constriction, you know? It's dukkha. Okay. So, and then we look at that. We're trying to say, well, what is the cause of this doubt? What is the mind doing that leads to the doubt? So you see, it's just a way of reflecting that change our normal way of reflecting, which is what's good and what's bad. And you can read through the notes to get a little bit more sense. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.